Welcome to episode 57 of Paper Talk, a monthly series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the field of hand papermaking and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand papermaking studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat and papermaking masterclasses here in the studio and I teach online classes about paper, light, and books. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today, I'm talking with Elizabeth King, the daughter of Douglas Howell, an icon in the world of hand papermaking. Douglas Howell is probably the first person to have used hand papermaking as an artistic medium as early as the 1940s, creating what he called papetries, which were shown at the Betty Parsons Gallery in New York City. Howell mentored several people who went on to establish papermaking studios and paper programs at the university level. Elizabeth tells me how she had her own vat in her father's studio as a child, and how Howell had a childhood mentor in Italy, where he lived, when he was growing up, who let him hold original drawings by Michelangelo and da Vinci, and how he told her about how those really old handmade papers still looked so new. My father said he was really impressed because he was holding paper that was hundreds of years old and looked like it had been made yesterday. This is just the tip of the iceberg about the life of a fascinating man and his life with paper. Enjoy our conversation. Elizabeth King, welcome to Paper Talk. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really interested in hearing your perspective on your father's work. And I wanted to start out just um, with you talking about your childhood memories of him and his artwork and his studio. Well, my very first memories of his studio are go all the way back to when I was probably about two and a half or three years old. Mm -hmm. And I would sit on the wheel of his press and it was sort of like having a ride, you know, while he turned it to press the water out of the the uh, stack of sheets. Um, and then he made me my own vat out of a galvanized tub on the floor of his studio because I wasn't tall enough right. to, to reach his vats. And he gave me my own little eight and a half by 11 mold. And so I was making sheets of paper when I was about three years old. So that would have been 1955. Wow. And, and where was the studio? Was it at your studio, home? Yeah, it was at our house. Uh-huh. It was down in the cellar. Okay. And, um, you know, because he had a water supply down there and all of his equipment um, probably was a little bit cramped. Mm -hmm. um, because he did have so much equipment down there. He had several beaters and he had, uh, I guess at that time he had two beaters going. Mm -hmm. He had the, his original one that had the, the, was made of copper. And then his second beater was made of stainless steel and he had his press. Right. And then he also had a machine that shredded the linens for him. Oh, which I think was a relic from World War II. I think it was an aluminum shredding machine. And ah. it was very, very noisy, and it was extremely dangerous. We 
we children were not allowed to feed it. Um, and it made a lot of noise when he uh, fed the linens into it. Um, but that solved the problem a little bit of having, getting the linens to the, to the right size to feed the fibers into the beater. Oh yeah. That's a ton of work. Wow. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Especially because at the time he was using, um, not exclusively, but he certainly had a fondness for Irish damask linen mm -hmm. because the papers that he turned out from that linen, um, had a sheen to it mm. and a quality to it that, um, that was really quite lovely. I still have some of those sheets. Yeah, um, and where was he getting that Irish the linens, linen? Yeah, well, you know, I think at first he was getting them from my mother's parents who had a lot of linens that, you know, had been passed down in the family. Uh huh. My great-grandmother had a dining room table that I think was 10 feet long, and she had uh. all of these absolutely exquisite uh, you know, tablecloths and, and uh, napkins and that kind of thing. And, but eventually they do wear out and they get little holes in them. Some of them, you know, had been repaired mm -hmm. because that's what people did back then was they had a seamstress repair them. Right. I remember seeing that little bit of sewing, you know, to, to, yeah. uh, to fix the holes, but eventually they ended up in my dad's paper. And um, when he realized how beautiful the paper was from this linen, um, and he had a relationship with um, the Fogg Art Museum mm -hmm. and the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. Right. And let's, where were you living? We were living uh, on Long Island at the time. Okay. In Westbury. Okay. And the museums put up a sign asking patrons to donate their old linens. Uh -huh. And so, you know, maybe, maybe once or twice a year, now I'm really dating myself. Um, it was called Railroad Express, I think. It 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 eventually became FedEx, I think. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they would ship down these great big boxes of linens from the museum, and my dad would go through them. And if they were stained, he would, you know, he would launder them. He would put them out in the sunshine. I remember seeing them draped on shrubbery. Yeah. Um, to dry and you know, ask the sun, I guess, to, to help with getting out any stains. Uh -huh. He didn't, you know, he didn't leave them out for weeks or anything like that, you know, maybe just for the day. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but he got a lot of really, really beautiful linens that way. You know, all these, you know, people in Boston who donated, you know, again, tablecloths and towels, linen towels, um, napkins and so on and oh. uh and also he got a lot of them in color so you know there were pink ones and yellow ones and blue ones and wasn't just always pure white linen and uh so that's you know when he started making his paper trees that's where the bulk of the fibers that he used in those papers were from those donated linens from the museums Ah, I see. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's go back in time a little bit. Um, first, I want to know whether your siblings also, um, whether that vat was for all of you, or was that your special vat? Did they have their own? That was my, that was my special little vat on the floor. 
Uh-huh. Um, I know that, you know, I'm the, I'm the, of, of the four siblings, I am number three. Okay. And um, I'm sure my older siblings made paper also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have no memories of that, but I'm right. sure that they did. Right. Okay. Um, we all spent a fair amount of time in my dad's studio, mm-hmm. puttering around with him and trying to help and being taught things. Yeah. And, um, and the one really nice thing about my dad is that, um, you know, he had three daughters and one son. Mm-hmm. And um, he was actually a bit of a feminist or, hmm. you know, he certainly didn't have a sexist bone in his body because he allowed me, with the exception of that machine that shredded the linens, he let me use all his tools. He taught me how to use them. Um, he felt that, you know, his his daughters could do anything he could do. Uh-huh. Wow, and I'm, cool. you know, and that's, that's a really wonderful memory to have that, mm-hmm. you know, that my dad let us bang with, we weren't very clever with them when we were four and five and six and eight years old, but you know, he allowed us to use everything and, and to do whatever we wanted really. Yeah. So that's cool. Um, yeah. He, yeah. He was a good teacher, a very patient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, just tell me briefly about his, what you know of his upbringing, because I know he had a very, um, he grew up in Europe and very yeah, interesting yeah. childhood. Yeah. He, uh, his mother, my dad was born in 1906. And mm-hmm. I think in 1910 or 11, I'm not positive the year. Um, she divorced her husband. They were living in New York city at the time. My dad had a sister who was exactly one year younger. Mm-hmm. Um, she took the children the night her ship sailed out of New York. She supposedly, according to uh, friends of a friend of hers, a friend of my grandmother's, she kidnapped them. She oh. took them from, from their father and she sailed to France. Oh my goodness. Okay. And she was, she was friends with Isadora Duncan. Uh huh. She and, um, Ruth Mitchell, um, who was Isadora's uh, assistant, and my grandmother all grew up together in San Francisco. Okay. And Isadora Duncan was living in Paris at the time, and I think was an influence in her leaving New York and sailing to France. So they lived in Paris until... So this would have been, my dad would have been about five, perhaps. And they think right. they lived there. They lived in Paris for several years. Mm-hmm. Isadora Duncan's two children were killed in that tragic accident. Mm. My father remembered that vividly. Mm-hmm. And then for some reason, I'm not sure the reason why, um, they moved to Florence. And my dad attended La Scuola Sperimentale, which was Maria Montessori's school in Florence. And they lived in Florence, I think, until World War I was well underway. And at that time, they moved to Genoa. And uh, they lived in a beautiful palatial villa Mm. um, that belonged to a count named uh, Conteraggi. And the villa was called uh, Villa Raggi and it overlooked the Ligurian sea and it was up on a hill and they, 
outskirts of Genoa. I've actually mm-hmm. visited uh, mm-hmm. that that exact spot. And uh, the, he and his sister went to the Swiss school in Genoa. And uh, But when they were living in Florence, and you may have heard this before or read it, I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. um, one of my grandmother's very close friends was a gentleman named Guido Biaggi. Mm-hmm. And he was the head of the uh, Biblioteca Nazionale, which is the National Library. Mm-hmm. And then at, at another time, I think he was in charge of the Uffizi. Mm-hmm. When my dad was very small, he said when he was seven and eight and nine, ten years old, Guido Biaggi would take him all over Florence, visiting sculptors, visiting um you know people who restored frescoes and people who restored paintings and mm. also introduced my father <clears throat> to his very first sheets of handmade paper uh-huh. he allowed my father to hold in his hands da vinci's drawings and michelangelo's drawings wow. and my father said he was really impressed because he was holding paper that was hundreds of years old and looked like it had been made yesterday. Yeah. And that was his introduction to handmade paper. So he was a young child, elementary school age, and that stuck with him. Right. And what a fabulous experience to be shown all of uh, oh, can those you imagine? wonders in Italy. Did his yeah. sister go along with them or it was just I father? don't believe so. I think it was huh. my father and Guido. Uh-huh. You know, my father didn't have a father at that point since his parents were divorced. His father was living in New York. Right. And I think Guido became a second father to him, a mentor. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I think he probably learned more from those hours or days or weeks he spent with, uh, with uh, Guido Biaggi, um, had more influence on his life probably than any other single person other than his mother. Right. And so now I can see maybe why your father was a feminist because he had this strong mother and she also worked for the Associated Press, right? She did. She eventually became a journalist. Yeah. Uh-huh. After World War One ended, she had volunteered for the Red Cross during the war. Okay. <clears throat> she unfortunately brought home diphtheria, which killed her youngest baby, her little baby. Mm. Um, and that's something my father never, ever mentioned to us. Hmm. I didn't Mm -hmm. find out about this baby brother until I went to Italy with my father's ashes. And Mm. we went to the cemetery to place his ashes where his mother's buried Uh and his stepfather. And there was a a grave site there and it, there was a little cross and it said Mm. Francesco Howell on it. Oh, wow. And uh, I was like, well, who was Francesca? My father never mentioned him. And apparently my grandmother had an affair with someone. She had a child out of wedlock. Uh I think that my father was somewhat, you know, embarrassed about that as an Uh adult anyway. Um, Uh But it had to be very tragic for the family. I do remember my father saying probably four or 500 times in my lifetime, Mm -hmm. no one knows the heartache of my mother. Mm. but yet he never spilled the beans. He never right. told us. Right. So it wasn't until after he had died 
that I found out what the heartache of his mother was. Right. Wow. But anyway, you know, so that had to have had an impact on his life as well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was, he was very well educated in Europe. He spoke five languages. Yeah. Um, and um, he attended the University of Turin, um, where, you know, he met a li- another lifelong friend, a guy named Pericle Chieri, who was a naval engineer who had actually grown up, in, who was Italian, but had grown up in China. Hmm. Um, really wonderful, wonderful man. He had some really outstanding friends that he met in Europe when he was growing up. Right. But anyway, to get back to that, you know, he, he eventually left um, Europe in the, he came back to this country, I think in 1933 or 34, um, and worked briefly for his father who was in the textile importing business. And I think he did quite a bit of traveling uh-huh. uh, during that period. And then... Was his mother um, still alive or what, what uh, his mother him was to move back to New York? Do you know? I think actually it was originally was a... I'm very confused about these details. I don't mm-hmm. know the actual chronology. Right. He got a job working for National City Bank as an inspector uh-huh. and his territory was Cuba, Central and South America. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if he worked for them e- either before he had this brief stint working for his father or whether it was after that. Okay. But his, the job with national city bank brought him to New York, I believe. Mm-hmm. Okay. He, he bought a, he bought a car like a model a mm-hmm. Ford, you know, mm-hmm. And drove it all the way to California and back. He said he went through about 15 flat tires. Oh, my gosh. But it, this was during the Depression. Yeah. So you can imagine, you know, it was, uh, it had to be a, a, a real experience to be back in New York at that time. Right. But eventually, um, he was drafted into the Army during World War II. So he entered the army, I believe, in 1941. And, um, of course, you know, he was given the battery of tests and ended up working, I think, in some form, military intelligence. Mm -hmm. If memory serves me right, he landed in Normandy the day after Ah. D-Day. He fought in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh Uh-huh. When the war ended, his mother had died in 1938, so she died before the war. Okay. And, um, and then when the war ended, he was stationed in Paris for, I don't know, six, eight, nine months, something like that. He is, was given the job of writing the history of his battalion, which he did. My brother mm-hmm. has that book. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, while he was in Paris... Um, he was hanging out, I imagine, in coffee shops and so on and met a lot of artists from that period who were all filtering back into Paris Mm -hmm. after the war had ended. I know he met Matisse Mm -hmm. in Paris. Mm -hmm. He uh, took a trip out to the Richard de Bas paper mill. Mm -hmm. Um, He spent some time doing woodcuts he did a beautiful little miniature woodcut uh, of uh, Pont Neuf, 
in oh. Paris and oh. several others. They're really darling. And um, he had been taught to, uh, to do the woodcutting by Gordon Craig's son, Teddy. Teddy Craig. And Gordon Craig was the famous set designer oh. for um, operas and uh, theater all over Europe. Oh. And that's the, where the Isadora connection comes again because Gordon Craig fathered Isadora's children. Okay. Um, so it's sort of a, a crazy mishmash there of people. Um, right. And, and what then, did, oh, I forgot to ask what Douglas studied in college. I couldn't tell you. Okay. I think okay. he studied engineering. Okay. I'm okay. not positive about mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Isn't it funny? Those are little gaps yeah. that, you know, yeah. things I never asked him. He would talk, right. oh, yes, I went to the University of Turin. Right. I never said, well, what'd you study there? <laughs> <laughs> right. But I think it must have been engineering because that's how he met Berkeley Carey. Okay. They probably okay. shared classes together. I'm not really sure. Uh -huh. um, I know that sounds ridiculous, but. No, I totally get it. Yeah. No, it's just not a thing I ever asked right. him. Right, right. My brother might know. Mm -hmm. um, my brother's six years older, so he probably has, you know. Yeah. He also has my father's archives okay, and my grandmother's letters and things like that that would probably clear up an awful lot of, mm -hmm. of the mysteries of my father's childhood because there are a lot of mysteries. <coughs> Excuse me. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we need someone to, uh, like Kathy Baker, how she did the Dart Hunter book, Yeah. to go through everything and write a Douglas Howell book. Right. Ah, okay. Right. So, yeah. all right. So he was after the army where yeah. he, so, he saw he paper worked, again. Yeah. He, he worked briefly as the literary agent for Ezra Pound, the poet. Mm. And um, Ezra was a friend of his mother's, mm -hmm. Ezra and Dorothy Pound. I have my uncle in Italy, my uncle's family has photographs of them all visiting the Pounds at Rapallo. And, ah. um, and so he, he didn't have much luck uh, selling any of Ezra's work because of his, Ezra's reputation, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but, of course, nowadays he's lauded. But I guess back then, you know, a lot of people thought he was pretty kooky, which I think probably he was quite kooky. Um, yeah, there's a quote by him that I put onto a giant inflatable ball that I made an art piece uh, the that says the book should be a ball of light in one's hand, and I just mm. love, I love that. Sentence. That's a nice image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, talk about growing up in a cultured atmosphere, you know, mm -hmm. between Florence and you know the 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 people that get that has that gathered around his mother. Right. Um, you know, like Ezra Pound and Biagi and, uh, and Isadora. I mean, you know, you had a dancer and a theater designer and right. a poet. And, you know, one can just imagine, you know, what dinner was like at their house when <laughs> my dad was growing up. You know, he used to say, oh, yeah, dinner would last three hours some nights when right. they had friends come over. Um, and of course, you know, we were living in this very small house in Westbury, Long Island. Um, 
And, you know, my dad would talk about, you know, growing up in Villa Raggi, which was, you know, had marble floors and frescoed ceilings. And we would kind of roll our eyes and think, uh-huh. you know, he's, he's got to be exaggerating, you know, uh-huh. um, because we certainly don't live in any kind of, <laughs> we certainly don't live in a palace the way he did. Right. And, um, and then, of course, when I went to Italy and discovered it was all true. Right. And I was very astounded. You know, right. I, I I couldn't figure out how somebody who came from such a background ended up in New York without two nickels to rub together, you know? Um, yeah. But of course, when you're a kid, you don't pay attention to that. But it, in retrospect, looking back on that, I don't know how he ever expected to be able to support a family by making handmade paper. Right. You know, he was he was selling it for you know fifty cents and ninety cents or a dollar ten a sheet, and um, though certainly things weren't as expensive back then, you know, um, I know my mother, you know, sometimes tore her hair out, yeah, uh, when it came to shopping and trying to figure out, you know, how she was going to feed and clothe and educate and so on, and here we had these very both my parents extremely well educated both right so both let's, educated in europe yeah so yeah. let's uh, let's bring your mother into the story what year how did they meet and where did they they met at 29 grand street in uh, lower manhattan and uh my mother was living there my father had a studio there And he was, he was, I think, living on West 10th Street at the time. Mm -hmm. And they met on the staircase. And um, I think she went up to and visited in his studio and he had the shades drawn and the, you know, in Italy, they keep the shutters closed during the day to keep Mm -hmm. the heat out, but it also keeps out the light. And she thought, well, this is very dismal. This man needs cheering up. (laughs) And, um, and they, they became friends very quickly uh-huh. and got married after only knowing each other for three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh. And so he, so he had a studio. What kind of studio did he have at that point? It was, it was an art studio. He was okay. painting. He was drawing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it had a little pot belly stove in it to heat it. Um, my mother had a wood burning cook stove in her flat. Mm-hmm. Um, the bathtub was also the kitchen table. It was a bit of like the honeymooners kind of place, mm-hmm. you know, very mm-hmm. primitive New York city, lower Manhattan, 1940s kind of place. You know, the, the ice was still brought by a, I, if I'm not mistaken, a horse drawn cart with ice blocks on it for their ice box. Wow. So Yeah. And he, he was um, no longer working for anyone else. He was going for it as an artist at this point. At that time, he was beginning to, exp- he had just returned to New York after the war. Mm-hmm. He, he was doing woodcuts, drawing and painting, and could not find decent paper in New York City at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And so he visited Harrison Elliott. He spent hours, if not weeks, at the New York Public Library researching hand paper making. And um, he dis- had his 
he designed his first Hollander beater and had mm-hmm. a machine shop in Brooklyn make it for him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he bought the little mower motor. You know, I think it's like a quarter horsepower motor or half uh-huh. power, something like that. Yeah. And set up his first beater in 1946. On Grand and, Street there. Uh-huh. And started yeah. making paper. And, um, and then I think, you know, while he was still in, living in New York, um, he tried to pedal it around, you know, to places. Um, eventually, and this is some, quite some time later, he um, wandered into Atelier 17 with handmade papers. And Anne Ryan grabbed a bunch, and then Juan Miro took the rest. Mm-hmm. And um, supposedly, Juan Miro gave some to Picasso. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that Picasso ever used them or not. I have no idea. Right. But um, but that that's really was the spark that right. set things off for him, because that's when Jackson Pollock discovered the paper and Lee Krasner, and uh, Stanley William Hayter, Leo Katz, Helen Frankenthaler, Mary Callery, all these artists that hung out together on a regular basis, um, as well as, you know, worked in that, uh, in that setting, um, all were pretty much fighting over my dad's papers. And, uh, there was this little sort of tiny explosion of work done on his paper by this group of artists back in that time period. And that led eventually to the, his first show at Betty Parsons his first one man show. And that was of pa- the paper trees. That was the paper trees. Yeah. And, and, that, and, like, and those yeah. were kind of experimental paperworks, would you say? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a great influence on him um, by Pollock at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, Pollock was doing that, you know, very, very expressive sort of experimental splattering of color. Um, and yeah. my father instead did it with pulp. Right, right. And, you know, then he got into the, um, into the um, fencing, you know, the fence and pouring technique and did a lot of abstract um, work um, that it, that stuff is my favorite, really. Right. I think he called it stopping out. So he would, yeah, yeah. Build, build little fences and pour colors. He build little fences and areas. he would pour the pulp in different colors in different areas. And it was, you know, the, I would say that the paper trees certainly are my favorite. But of course, you know, I grew up with those hanging on the walls at home. And so, you know, that, that was home. Hey, listeners, let's take a little break here. And I want to tell you about my upcoming online class, Paper Plus Light. We'll be creating single sheet lanterns, woven window hangings, collapsible forms, bendable paper, stitched paper vessels, shadow structures, natural armatures, and inflatables. Read more and watch the video trailer at helenhebertstudio.com slash shop slash paper dash light dash online dash class. Class begins July 6th. 2020. Hope to see you there. Now back to the episode. 
he was the first person, I think you can, I, I mean, yeah, that was making art out of handmade paper before Correct. like Dard Hunter was around. Um, yeah. He died in the sixties, I think. So yeah. they overlapped. Um, uh, but Dard was just making sheets and printing books and all of that. Um, right. I think Douglas my father, was really, yeah, uh, he was credited. letting the cat out of the bag, which exactly. Sparker said later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, he has been credited with being the first to use paper as an expressive medium. And so it's interesting that you said that about Jackson Pollock. And I think Jackson was attracted to Douglas's paper because it was um, absorbent. The absorbency was different. So it took the paint different than the other paper he'd been using. Well, plus he bought some papers that had inclusions in them. There's okay. Mm -hmm. They're little scripts, little tiny scraps of kitchen towel and linen right. rag um, that weren't completely eaten by the beater. Um, so you'd have these little odd bits of, and I actually still have some of the actual paper from the same batches that Pollock used. Right. That's so, so cool. when I, when I've seen Pollock's work hanging at a gallery or in a museum, I can identify the paper and say, I have that exact paper at home made yeah. from that same vat of pulp. Right. Um, so that could have been the point in time, the, the meeting of those two that really was the beginning of paper art. Yeah. Handmade and, paper uh, well, art. Yeah, I think so. I think, mm -hmm. you know, one of the first pieces that he did was the clown. I don't know if you've ever seen that piece or not. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I can, I can always get you a, a photograph yeah. Yeah, of it. Yeah, that'd be great. But, um, but yeah, I think there was, there was definitely was all sorts of influence bouncing back and forth between all of these artists. Um, so was he socializing but, with these artists too? Oh yeah. And, uh, uh -huh, oh yeah. Uh -huh. yeah he, and, he, and he was selling he, his paper really cheap to them? Yeah. 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 And a lot of times he was giving it away. Mm -hmm. and because the artists couldn't afford it. Right. Um, so, you know, he would, he gave away probably more paper than he sold back in those days. Um, but gosh, I mean, there, there's so much information to, to when I, you know, it's just racing through my mind now at this point of, you know, all of the different things he was trying to do to make money. He was printing broadsides. He was printing poetry uh, he did my mother's book, Song of Magdalene. Um, right. You know, Pollock came to our house on several occasions, but the first time he came completely unannounced. Mm -hmm. He just showed up at the front door and knocked. And my, my uh, parents answered the door and he stood there and he didn't say hello or introduce himself. His first words were, I came to see how you do it. <laughs> Had he met your father yet or he hadn't even he met him? I don't know if, uh, yeah, I think they probably had met. Okay. Um, but he didn't know the process of making right. the Right. And he really wanted to know that process. So uh -huh. he just showed up on our doorstep. And um, so he, he, he came and he saw right. how it was done. And then I remember as a child um, sitting on Pollock's lap and stealing chiclets chewing gum out of his pocket <laughs> his shirt pocket he would have a 
package of chiclets gum in there and he would share it with me. And uh, so what year, what year were you born? I was born in 52. 52. Okay. So from grand street, your parents moved moved to long Island to have start a family. Is that kind of, actually they ended up moving to Pepperell, Massachusetts briefly. Okay. Then they moved to Newport, Rhode Island, where my older sister was born. Uh-huh. Um, and then they moved to Long Island after that. So um, they did move around quite a bit until they settled in in Westbury. And then I was born when they were living in Westbury, and so was my younger sister. Okay. Um and so did they move back to the New York area for work prospects or? I, sure. I, I'm not positive mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. I think they moved to Westbury when my father got a job working as an engraver for Cartier. Oh, okay. And he did that for quite a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it was a, he needed to have a steady income to pay the bills. Right, right. But he wanted a job that he could do at home. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he bought an, a hand engraving machine, um, mm-hmm. which you operated by hand. Mm-hmm. And that was also set up down in his studio. Okay. So he would, you know, be up late at night, you know, in doing engraving while the beaters were running. Right. And one of the interesting things is that, you know, when from the very beginning he kept beater logs and uh, always kept a sheet of paper from each vat load of pulp at, to, and put the beater log number on it. And the beater log consisted of all of the information on that, um, that, that sheet of tape, that match mm-hmm. exactly the, mm-hmm. This was linen, dam- damask linen. The beater ran for six hours. Um, this is the paper I produced with it. Um, and then, yeah. you know, huge difference whether you ran the beater for two hours or you ran it for 12 or 14. You know? Right. And I think and, he's, uh, he's known for saying paper is made in the beater. He exactly. really researched the heck out of Yeah, he did. Beating. He did. And he... He oh. kept, you know, meticulous uh, records of everything he did. He even had some machine and some, I shouldn't call it a machine. It was a piece of equipment uh-huh. that, could, that could artificially age things. Um, right. I don't know, to I don't know test the, how long it would test last. how his, the paper would hold up. Right. And, of course, he swore that his paper would last a thousand years, mm-hmm. providing it wasn't left outside in the weather. Right. Um, and I think his, his, he also very, very, very strongly resisted adding any chemicals ever to paper. Mm-hmm. He said his paper, you could eat it. It was that pure. Right. He never, he never put any pigments in his paper, in his pulp. If he wanted color, he used colored, colored fast rags. linen rags. Mm-hmm. Um, he did work with cotton for a while. He decided he really wasn't that fond of the paper uh-huh. that that he produced with cotton. He he was much more fond of linen. Um, and then, of course, you know, he got into doing the flax stuff after growing his own flax in our 
on our property. And, yeah, so uh, make, how did that come about? I, I read somewhere that your mother gave him a gift of some flax seeds. Yeah, she did. She did. Uh -huh. and, uh, and he planted the flax, and uh, he made his you know, first flax papers. Actually, I think the very first ones were linen with flax mixed in. Mm -hmm. They weren't pure flax. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there was quite enough flax to actually make an entire beater load of it. But eventually he did get his hands on uh, tons of flax. Um, and then, and that was like the late 60s and early 70s that he started doing experiments with the shrinkage thing with flax. Mm -hmm. um, you know, making a, a sheet of paper, putting things. strings in it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then it Embedding, would shrink. Uh, pieces of lace or right. string or whatever and then letting it shrink on its own and see what happened and he was he just really went off on that he just loved what he could do with that yeah um, and that's something i have explored in my work as well and it's fascinating uh, um i'm curious whether you know anything about the flax like the flax that he grew um it's really there's a whole processing just of the plant fiber to get the actual, just the, this teeniest bit of fiber that really could be made into paper, scutching and hackling, you know, about all this for just I don't, to make it I, into cloth. Yeah. So I'm wondering if yeah, he did I, that with his flax, but I then, don't know. okay. And um, I, I was too young to remember. Yeah. 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 You know, um, that, that, um, that but, that yeah i was i was probably very busy with school and homework and playing yeah. sports or whatever and you know there's there's an i i didn't live in my father's studio right you know it was of like course. yeah this was just something my dad did yeah yeah and all, no and all, I these, <laughs> all these artists you know i was like tripping over them in my uh -huh. living room um you know tatiana grossman and all of the artists from ulae um mm -hmm. These are, this was just something my dad did. So right. I did not, it wasn't any kind of focus for me on his paper making at all. Yeah. Of course, when there was an, a big event, like an art show or something like that, of course, we all, all we children uh, were, were invited and we went and, um, you know, but it, it's, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that huge a part of our lives in that, we didn't partake in right. no, what I he was busy that. doing in his studio. Yeah, I my father was a nuclear physicist, and um, oh my I God. know he studied how the world began, but that's <laughs> all I know. <laughs> um, so what do you know about, I think he met Dard Hunter at MIT. Do you know much about that? He visited Dard Hunter in Connecticut. Oh, Connecticut, okay. Yeah, yeah, Dard Hunter had a, had a mill um, there. He had a mill there right near a river, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. Mm -hmm. I want to say vaguely that we all went like as a family uh -huh. um, and, and visited that studio. Somewhere, there, somewhere I have a photograph of it, mm -hmm. the, the day of that visit. And it could be that the photograph is etched in my mind and not so much the visit. Sure. Um, I do remember going to Pollock's house in Springs because his neighbors had turkeys. Ah, yeah. And when you're two and a half years old, turkeys are bigger than you. Right. 
They're and scary. I didn't want to, I didn't want to get out of the car. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but that's really the only thing I remember. That and the screen door, the way the screen door slammed. Uh-huh. Other than that, that's that's my only memories of Springs. But um yeah, unfortunately, he died when I was so young. And so that, you know, Lee Krasner, my dad kept a relationship with, and I remember her all the way into my teens. Right. right. But uh it's a shame that that uh that Pollock was killed. Just really awful. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's important to mention that your father was really the only one doing this. I mean, aside from Dard Hunter, there was no, right. like today, there are lots of people that you, I mean, it's still small, a small number, but you can find another person in your state who's making paper. Uh, so he was really a pioneer and um, yeah, figuring everything out by himself. Yeah, and as you said, doing research at the New York Public Library, and I'm guessing meeting Dart Hunter was probably um, a really cool thing for him to sort of oh, chat sure. back and forth. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure that the the conversation was fascinating. Yeah, and also, you know, he he also met with Harrison Elliott. Right, um, and Harrison was uh, importing papers from Japan from the Japan Paper Company. Is that mm-hmm. yeah? Yeah, that's right. So, and he had, right. I read that too. He had a beater and um, yeah, maybe made some paper as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was in New York. And again, this is, this happened all before I was born. So I'm right. Right. Real sketchy on those. Oh, really more what I've read. Yeah. Than, uh, yeah. And anything that, you know, that my dad really talked about. Right. Um, and but, then you know, it, Okay. So he, was, he sorry, he was, um, a, so he was, um, yeah, just, uh, running all his tests, making paper, trying to sell it, experimenting, making experimental artworks. And, um, um, is maybe that's around the time Lawrence Barker found out about him. And then he had a series of people who came and learned from him and um, which was instrumental in how papermaking spread across the United States. Yeah, I remember Lawrence Barker coming. I think mm-hmm. I was, maybe I was 10 that uh-huh. year. Uh-huh. We were heading out for Newport to spend the summer with our grandparents, which we did every summer. Okay. And, uh, but I remember Lawrence Barker arriving. I think my brother stayed home that summer with my dad mm-hmm. and Lawrence Barker. And my mother and my two sisters and I, we all headed up to New England for the summer. Oh, okay. And um, after Lawrence Barker, I remember Helmut Becker coming. Yeah. By then we were living in Oyster Bay. Okay. Um, and Helmut has have... a real interest. He's worked with flax forever. So Right, right. Maybe and he helps my that. dad build if i'm not mistaken he helped my dad build the the see-through beater that's oh, made okay. of um uh you know the plastic right I remember, I remember them you know melting the plastic in the oven mm. to get it just the right temperature where it would bend oh my gosh yeah and so, so they they wanted to be able to see what was actually my dad exactly my yeah. dad was so intent on teaching other people how to do what he did Mm -hmm. that he thought having this plexiglass beater 
would be such an important learning tool to be actually be able to see the beater yeah. in operation, you right. know, pushing all of that pulp through. Um, Is that brother, beater still around anywhere? My brother has it. Okay. Uh-huh. The last I heard, it had a leak, so he wasn't able to put water in it. Uh-huh. Um, he was looking for someone to help him fix it, and I think he was trying to get in touch with uh, somebody Rana, in or, no 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 I think it was Tim Barrett uh-huh um, or somebody perhaps at the University of Wisconsin at Madison which is where my brother lives okay um, I think he's donating my dad's printing press to them oh wonderful um, you know his big Washington hand press right which was you know that was my favorite piece of equipment I used mm-hmm. to when I was a teenager, I would make my own handmade paper, and then I would print my own Christmas cards on that press. Aww. My dad had done a woodcut of, a, of an evergreen tree, uh-huh. and uh, it was just the most perfect thing to make into a Christmas card. Yeah. I think I still have a few copies of it. I don't know what happened to the woodblock. My oh. brother may have it, but... Um, I still have some of his artwork here. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my, you know, I closed the estate down a number of years ago, and um, you know, my sisters both came and took what all the pieces that are of artwork that they wanted. My brother has the green box. He's trying to to have the the pieces renovated. In in other words, they the pieces in the green box all need to be remounted. So tell, tell us about the green box. The green box was built by my dad to house, um, I would guess it probably had 30 or 40 panels in it that were roughly maybe 15 by 18 inches or something like that, maybe a little bit bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my father, people started hearing about him. Mm-hmm. And so he started getting invited to to come and lecture mm-hmm. and give demonstrations at universities all over the country. Right. And so that's why he put together the green box. And in the green box were all different examples of handmade paper and artwork that he had done that would fit in that box. And then he uh-huh. would take that with him. And I know he went to the University of Kansas. He took it to Toronto. He took it to Washington State. Um, and I don't know where all else. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that box traveled all over the country. Um, Lawrence Barker found out about my father from one of his students mm-hmm. um, who I who think was- had visited my father and, and uh, had brought the paper back to Cranbrook with him. Ah, oh, right. And That's when right. Lawrence Barker saw the paper, he was like, where did you get this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's where that started. So um, there's just one green box. There's, there's usually Baron had put together what she called green box two. Okay. Which she assembled, she curated, she had the box built and the panels made and that exhibited around the country a little bit too. I don't think it, it traveled as much as she would have liked it to. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it did, I think it went to Minnesota. Mm -hmm. um, I think Amanda Degner maybe had something to do with it going there. Mm -hmm. um, and Eugenie Barron was another student of your father's, someone who correct. came and worked with him for yeah. a while. Yeah, yeah. She was, she was around pretty much from the time she first started studying paper making with him and she's still a very dear friend of mine mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and uh and also um kathy doherty um mm -hmm. did her doctoral dissertation on his on my dad and his work oh, okay so that is a uh, a a good reference yeah. um for information um you know, she, she worked hard on that for, I don't, I can't tell you how many years. Oh, yeah. Probably close to 10 before she got all done. Right. And, um, and that, that is a really good resource. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I sent my copy of it to my brother because he wanted to see it. He had not ever seen it. And I only had one copy, so I don't have it anymore. Um, oh. But. Yeah. Um, I, I read about, uh, Douglas's self-illuminated sculptures. Do you know anything mm -hmm. about those? Because I'm really interested in paper and light. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, there, there, I just recently saw a photograph of one. Oh, mm -hmm. it might be, it might be in, uh, do you know Nicole Donnelly? Yeah, I know she just wrote an essay about Douglas. She in, did. Uh, Papermaker's Tears. Yeah. Right. And in that book, I think there's actually a photograph of one of his illuminated pieces. Oh, cool. Um, I think those pieces still exist. They're just not illuminated anymore. He mm -hmm. built special boxes for them mm -hmm. uh, so that they could have a light behind them. And so those boxes, you know, when he had to move, we had to disassemble a lot of things because there was, just wasn't anywhere to put these things right? Um, or store them. And the other problem is that over the years, a lot of things disappeared, hmm. unfortunately. Hmm. Uh, artwork vanished. Uh, we don't know who took it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes things were borrowed and never returned. Right. My dad had an entire suite of prints by uh, Stanley William Hayter, and mm. someone quote unquote borrowed them mm. and never returned them. Today they're worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. So we don't know. We, we, we have no idea who took some of the things, where they went, where they are today. Um, and it's really a shame. Yeah, that um, is. you know, but um, my father was very trusting. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, my mother said the same thing. She said, you know, he was very trusting. And some people are just not honest. Right, right. Uh, so, you know, there's, you know, that's water under the bridge. There's nothing right. we can do about right. that. It's right. bad, but, you know, that's the way it is. Um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, you know. A lot well, so of let's, his work. Let's, um, we need to wind down and I want to just talk about sort of his later years. So your mom and dad split up. It seems about the time all the kids were out of the house. Uh, 
Yeah, I was, yeah. My, my younger sister was at boarding school. Mm-hmm. I was in school in Switzerland. Um, yeah, and the two older siblings were out of the house by that mm-hmm. time. And, um, and yeah, and they, it was just time. They, you know, yeah. they, they split up and, uh, and so where did he, uh, work then? Well, he did kept he the house. He stayed, he stayed in Oyster Bay. Okay. We, we were, we had moved to Oyster Bay in like 1967 or something like that. Oyster mm-hmm. Bay, Long Island. Right. And he stayed in the house. My mother moved out. Okay. And um, so my dad stayed there for quite a long time. Uh, eventually the house was sold and then he moved to Bayville, New York. And then from Bayville, he got a grant from International Paper Company and he moved to Riverhead. Oh. What was the and, grant for? Um, not sure. Not sure. Yeah. Okay. You know, equipment research. Right. Teaching. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not really sure. I know that when he was in Riverhead is when I think Sue Gosen came to visit him the first time. Mm-hmm. That's where Eugenie worked with him. Okay. Um, and then, you know, he was getting old by that time. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, I think but he was noticed. He was in his in, in that, I want to just talk briefly about the Brooklyn Public Library and American Craft Council. He had exhibitions there. Yes, he did. Yeah. And um, the American Craft was a retrospective. That was mm-hmm. in 1982. Okay. Um, and, you know, I don't think American Craft even owns a piece of his work, to be honest with you. But that was a very large, lengthy ex- exhibition um, and probably was the most comprehensive of any mm-hmm. exhibition that, that of his work that's ever happened. Um, yeah, and they published a, I believe this is the catalog I'm looking at, which is a very thorough, yeah, that's it. It's, um, it's an interesting catalog because it's a chronology for the most part. It right. really documents his work. There's a few pictures of his work, but mm-hmm. it, it goes through his whole life. And Alexandra Soterio put that together. Yeah, she did. Um, uh, so it's, an, it's a nice little catalog that I happen to get a copy of. Mm-hmm. I do think I do think they might own a few pieces. I I I think I was looking on the website, but okay. not much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't I wasn't terribly sure. I know that I was executor of his estate when he died, and mm-hmm. I uh, I wrote them and asked them if they'd be interested in purchasing anything, and uh, they wrote back. I think and said not at this time. So. Uh-huh. Was uh, he ever interested in selling his work? I, I, you know, I think he, he definitely would have liked to have sold it. He mm-hmm. would have liked to have sold it for a lot of money. Right. <laughs> I mean, after working all those decades and yeah. putting, he put every fiber of his being yeah. into his paper and his art. Yeah. And uh, he never saw any tremendous financial success. Right. You know? right. He always talked about how he'd love to put all of his grandchildren through college and uh, or pay for you know for good schooling for them. It never happened. Mm-hmm. He, um, you know, and then and that's I, I even find that a little distressing uh, mm-hmm. to this day that 
you know, I have sitting up in my attic, you know, quite a few pieces of his artwork. And, uh, and I see, you know, um, hand paper making has a magazine. They have, mm-hmm. you know, a website. They have mm-hmm. a Facebook page that, you know, to, today, well, now thinking back to 1994 when I, I gave a, a brief talk at the Dart Hunter meeting when it was up here in Massachusetts. And, um, and you know, at that time, papermaking was being taught in 120 institutions around the globe. Right. And, and I sort of felt like, you know, my dad really got this wheel turning. Yeah, he did. He really, really did. Mm-hmm. And he's not ever really fully been recognized is how the family feels anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, we've always kind of felt like, you know, there, there never was any financial recognition that, you know, I've toyed with the idea of, um, of, you know, putting up one of his really special exquisite pieces for auction and see mm-hmm. just to see what happens. Mm-hmm. But I kind of feel like, well, nobody knows who he is. So who's going to buy it? Um, you know, and, and I suppose I shouldn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are certainly are a lot of people who write about him and, um, and seem to have an interest, but I, I always, I always felt like the, the papermaking world is a very sort of small and enclosed group that yeah. they're not, they're not, you know, so there probably are papermakers out there making money, but I don't know who they are. Put it that way. Well, I would not I like, would agree and I that's what I was gonna comment and say is that um you know <laughs> nobody in the hand paper making world has figured out how to commoditize. Um, you know, there's some artists that come in and work at paper studios who have a big name and so they're able to sell their handmade paperwork for big price because of their name. Right. It's like Jackson Pollock. Right. Yeah, he, sure. You no, know, he was able to, he had a name. Oh, I don't even know. That maybe happened well, partly during his lifetime, partly after. But um, yeah, it's, it's tricky. Um, and you're right. I think lots of people, I mean, people want to document that Douglas was the first. That's why I wanted to have this conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And he's inspired so many people, but yeah, it's hard to put, unfortunately. I mean, it seems like someone might purchase his archive for a chunk of money, not anything near what it would be worth, but it could be a big sum, some institution or library. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't really know. My brother yeah. has all that stuff now. He has... Right. I think he has sent out feelers, you know, to, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. find a home for the archive. I know the mm-hmm. Smithsonian wants it, but they don't want to pay for it. Right. Well, and even donate it. Yes, that's right. That's right. And I remember during uh, reading what your father said about um, being invited to lecture. He got tons of invitations to lecture, but nobody wanted to pay him. Exactly. So... And, yeah. and yeah, and so he still did those lectures, though. Yeah, right. You know, no, he was passion. So, he had a passion. 
for it. Yeah. 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 And um, I think in that sense, he was extremely generous with his time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, the University of Kansas may have um, made a, paid his expenses mm -hmm. um, to go there and stay there and travel back again. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that they paid him any large sum of money if they paid him at all. Right. And that, that I have to say is still an issue today. I, I work similarly. I work for myself and I get invited to teach different places and there's no, there's no standard for people like me or right. you know, so there's no, like you have to be paid this much. And so people will ask, well, what do I charge? And, um, I charge now I charge a much higher fee than I did at the beginning because I was asking mm -hmm. other people and some people have a full-time job and do paper making on the side and lecture about it. So they don't really need the income, but someone right. like me or your father, um, we need the income because we don't have uh, a side job. I do have a husband who's gainfully employed, so that helps me, but yeah, it's a very tricky, um, it's tricky business. And I wish with all my heart that the younger artists can, uh, yeah, be paid the same as someone working in business or a lawyer or, right. you know, it right. really should be more. Yeah. That's one of the things that discouraged me from pursuing any artistic endeavor as a, yeah, as any form of employment was, you know, my father certainly was not the greatest example of, of, you know, someone who made a fortune. Right. Uh, doing art and yeah. uh you know but i you know i would love to see some museum like the whitney or the guggenheim or you know even mass mocha you know to to say you know wow we'd love to put an exhibition together of, of douglas howell's artwork and you know just because so few people when you think about it have actually seen it Right. You know, it's, yeah, yeah it, you know, there are pieces in, in, at the Ashmolean Museum, at the Fog, at the Fine Arts Museum in Boston, at the Brooklyn Museum, the Museum of Modern Art. How often are those pieces ever shown to anybody? Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I remember my daughter was two and we were living in Arlington, Virginia, about a mile from the Smithsonian as the crow flies. And mm -hmm. we spent a lot of time um, because whenever friends came to visit, they all wanted to go see all the museums. And I was strolling through the Smithsonian um, with my daughter in the stroller, walking past a glass window and seeing my father's stuff in there. <laughs> and I had no idea it was being exhibited. Absolutely none. I remember going home and calling him on the phone. And saying, "Oh my gosh, you're in the wow. it was the yeah. the Museum of History and Technology, and they had a whole exhibit of Douglas Howell hand paper making stuff. It was remarkable." Yeah, and he um, didn't, he didn't know either. I don't think he knew right. either. He was wow. he was astounded. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but anyway. Okay. Well, we're gonna sign off now. But it's been okay. really a joy talking to you and learning more. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to talk to you too. Yeah. I, I, I'm so encouraged by the fact that so many people are pursuing 
some sort of artistic endeavor in in hand paper making. I mean, there is so much satisfaction in knowing that he lit this little fire and it's really spread. Yeah. And uh, and I wish all of them the best. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at helenhebertstudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up at helenhebertstudio.com to receive my e-newsletter. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed it, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps other people find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Paper Talk, where you can find out more about them, subscribe to the series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. I'll talk to you soon. Besides the season.